location managers walk a, a tightrope. One foot's in production and one foot is in locations. And the locations are people that you get to know. If you go there, you do your work and you leave. You've got to be able to knock on that door again. Next week, next month, next year, knock on the door and have them welcome you back. If you can, you've done your job. If you can't, you haven't done your job. Hey everyone, welcome to Call Sheet, a podcast about film production and the boots on the ground work of below the line crew. If you work in physical production in any department, this show's for you. Thanks so much for joining us. Welcome back, folks, and thanks for listening to Call Sheet. Once again, we're your hosts, Bryce Sirier and Kiku Terasaki. Hey there, Kiku. Hey, Bryce. Today on the show, we're talking to a veteran location manager, Mike Fantasia. We'll get expert advice about the creative and logistical aspects of his job, like scouting, budgeting, management, collaborating with department heads, and how to interface with location owners. He's got some incredible stories, and we'll also learn best practices for working your way up in the locations department, including Mike's secret criteria when hiring people for his department. Locations are the essence of creating the world of a movie, and finding locations that convey both the setting and the emotions of a story is an exacting creative and organizational job. Location managers are often the very earliest eyes of a production. They manage some of the largest costs on a film budget, and they are the face of the production to all the government agencies, local communities, and of course to the property owners. Mike Fantasio was described to me as pretty much the top guy in locations, and he is. He's successfully scouted and managed over 30 major features shot all over the world, among them Munich, Indiana Jones, and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, The Amazing Spider-Man, and most recently, Top Gun Maverick. Mike was recognized as Location Professional of the Year by the Association of California Film Commissions for Memoirs of a Geisha and for The Green Hornet. He's also president of the Location Managers Guild International and a member of the Academy's production design branch. So he has a lot of stories to tell about being part of some great movies. Welcome, Mike. Thank you very much. It's uh, nice to be here with you. So, Mike, we thought we'd start by hearing a bit of your story. How did you get started in the business? Was there a big break or some key career moment? Big break. Big, big break. I was working for the U.S. Forest Service in a very small town in Montana, Libby, Montana. I was told by a friend of mine that uh, Steven Spielberg was coming to town to make part of a movie, uh, always, about firefighting. Uh, Through a whole series of events, um, it just so happened in my job with the Forest Service, I prepared permits for all kinds of things, including filming. And my boss and I put together the permit for the motion picture, and I became liaison to the film production. When it came time to film, they needed somebody from the Forest Service to be on set every day to ensure that the permit was being complied with. So every day we'd go to set, I'd meet with the production team, and we'd look at weather, and we'd check humidity and wind direction and all the forecasts, and we would let production know what they could and couldn't do. And there were some days when they couldn't make fire, or they couldn't fly planes or helicopters because the winds were too high. Um, at the end of every day, we would stick around for another hour and a half or two hours to make sure that all the fires were put out. It was great. Every day you'd go tell Steven Spielberg what he can and can't do in the woods. Uh, Richard Dreyfuss, John Goodman, Holly Hunter, working with these folks every day was just fantastic. So I, I got my shot of movie heroin 
and I'll, it was the first day that they were filming down at the airport. I, I drove down to see what they were doing at night. And from five miles away, I just saw this glow in the sky. What the heck is that? And I pulled up to the airport and they've got these huge carbon arc lights lighting up these two B-25 bombers, fire bombers on the tarmac. And I just thought, wow, this is freaking incredible, beautiful. And all the people, the frenzied activity. It was frenzied, but it was organized. Everybody was doing something, but it wasn't chaotic. It wasn't hysterical, but everybody was moving. Everybody knew what they were doing. And I just thought, this is the epitome of teamwork. You've got camera people and grips and electricians and hair and makeup and wardrobe and catering and craft service and production, all working together to make sure that at a certain time, a certain scene could be filmed. It was really a, just a hell of an introduction to filmmaking uh, with one of the biggest directors in the world, some of the biggest stars in the world, four miles from my house. Um, so that was my introduction. Uh, after the film ended, I kept in touch with the location manager who I got to know pretty well. And a year later, she gave me a chance to work on a film. So January 11th, um, 1991 was my last day with the Forest Service. And uh, over the course of the next uh, three years or so, I, I worked on various films with the location manager, Patricia Fay from Always, as well as some other folks all in Washington, Oregon, and Montana. And then through a whole series of events, I moved to Los Angeles, which I said I would never do, and uh, launched into my career here. I think it's so great. Everyone has a different path into the business, you know, and I, I love that your experience in the Forest Service transitioned into your work in location management. Yeah, it, especially early on, I worked on a lot of movies that were set on, on National Forest or BLM land in the West. And my experience as a permit coordinator with the NEPA, the National Environmental Policy Act process to get environmental assessments done and all that kind of stuff really, really helped me a lot. For years, that's why I was hired on a number of jobs because I know the process. I know the lingo. I know where they're bullshitting me and where they're not bullshitting me. I knew how to work the process to the best advantage, uh, not in a bad way, but just how to, you know, most people don't know how to deal with that kind of paperwork and the bureaucracy, and I understood it completely. So it worked out really, really well. You're one of the founders of the Location Managers Guild International. It's not your union. No, it's not a, not a bargaining union. It's a, it's a guild. Um, how is it different? Our union, 399, has done a great job. But there were things that the union couldn't do or can't do because of its charter and how it's regulated. The union dealt mostly with day-to-day -day job issues. We were looking at the creative end and, and the bigger picture, our role in the industry. So a bunch of us got together and, and I think the Guild has done a lot of things. You know, our motto is promoting excellence on location worldwide. Uh, excellence on location is, it seemed to be something that really covered everything, both the creative and logistics. The Guild is much more interested in, in the creative contributions. The logistics, uh, not as big a deal with, within the Guild, and I think for a good reason. This is about our place with the cinematographers, with the production designers, with the producers, with the directors, with the art directors, set decorators, and our contribution to the, to the film. And, uh, you know, since I've been in, uh, Lori Balton was the first location manager allowed into the academy. She got in about six years ago in the design branch. But after Lori got in, I got in, a bunch of us got in. So now there's probably 10 or 12 location managers in the, in the academy, which is, which is great. So that to me really shows how far we've come. We've got a great magazine. We've got a great website. 
We have educational seminars. We do uh, photo shows. We've got all kinds of things that we do that have each served in one way or another to help enhance the knowledge of the value of a location manager. I think that's really great. um, You said to me when we were talking before that you see your job as 90% creative and 10%, you know, organizational and logistical. And we kind of wanted to ask you to step us through that whole process, starting with you get hired, you read the script. What's the next thing you do? I mean, every project is different. Some projects, they tell you we're going here because this is where it happened or because of the incentives, fine locations. Or they'll say, we're going we're gonna to consider Georgia and Ohio and New Mexico. So Scott, those three incentive states, find us the best stuff you can find and let, then we'll make a decision. But uh, my process is fairly standard. Given whatever parameters I'm given, uh, the first thing I'll do is I'll call film commissions in the area and find out what they have available, what resources they have. Then I just go online and start searching. It's so easy now with, with a computer uh, to find photographs of anything in the world uh, very quickly. Uh, Google Earth is a huge friend of mine. Getty Images, a lot of the, the image databases, architectural databases, landscape databases, photographers' databases. There's so much information out there. So I just scout on a computer. And it might just be me. It might be me and an assistant. We spend sometimes days just going through and putting together presentations for the designer, narrowing things down. Once we narrow things down, we go out and scout. And sometimes that's me hopping on a bus and going somewhere. Sometimes that's an assistant going out somewhere. Sometimes it's a lo- hiring a local person to do an initial scout. It just depends on the project and, and what we're looking for. Ultimately, I'll go out and, and scout the best of what the designer likes. Then I'll drag the designer out to the best of what we like based on my scouting. Then at some point you get the producer, the visual effects people, the cinematographer, and and this is all assuming you're sort of on distant location. Um, and you take a trip. You might go to Albuquerque and then Santa Fe, and then you go to uh, Cleveland and to Atlanta and Marietta, Georgia. And you look at all these things, come back, hash it all out and say, okay, you know what? We're going to go to New Mexico based on finance and the look and, and the availability of hotels and crew. That's where we're going. And I, you got half my quote right. Early on, it's 90% artistic and 10% logistics. As we go through the process over many, many months, it then transitions to maybe 10% creative and 90% logistics. Where do we put the crew? How do we build the roads? I might have the best location for a scene, but if I can't get a crew there, you don't want to get the director pregnant with it and then him find out weeks later that you can't get the trucks within six miles of it. So I, I filter things out. Yeah, that's great. So what is your approach, Mike, for telling people no in situations like that? Pretty simple. Hey, you can't get trucks within six blocks. You still want me to pursue it? The producer is going to say no. The director of Aero might say, yeah, I don't care where the trucks are. It's fine with me. You're going to have a shorter production day. And what I learned early on is just share the information and share it as soon as you have it. So Mr. Director, Ms. Director, it's a great house, but the, you know this room that you saw a photo of? It's actually you know nine by twelve. This is a photograph taken with a fifty millimeter lens as opposed to a fourteen millimeter lens, and you can see, you know, the two people are you know filling up the room. Um, or look at the Google Earth image, guys. You can put the trucks here, locations there. It's six blocks up Sunset Boulevard, and you're going to be doing this during rush hour. 
you could do it, guys. It took me 45 minutes to make that drive the other day at two in the afternoon. I love it. You just state the facts, right? Yeah. It's not my call. And that brings up a good question, Mike. For those of our listeners who don't know, could you talk about who hires you and who you're directly reporting to? My work early on is primarily with the production designer as far as where I'm scouting, what I'm scouting for, what I'm looking for, because they hopefully have the director's ear and are giving me the information that they need to tie into all their other things. I'm always talking to the producer, always talking to the production manager, but the designer is the person I've I've got to satisfy first. So I would think that that relationship has to be highly collaborative. That is, you have to develop the same visual ideas as the production designer. How do you do that? Do you have a particular approach? You know, it's you just get to know the designer. You, uh, you know, you spend a lot of time just in the office talking. I just ask straightforward, what do you want? You know, some movies, there's an arc, there's a transition in the look. Sometimes it starts out with a gritty look and ends up with a romantic look or certain scenes. You know, we're going to play the scenes in New York is really dark and gritty. The scenes out in the desert are bright and sunny. So it's just getting into, into their head as far as what they see as the vision for the movie, for the specific parts of the movie. Just trying to get on the same page as the designer. And ultimately, once you start sending photos, you do that a few days, a few weeks, pretty soon you know what they want and what, and what, they're, what, they, what they need. And you just, you know, you, you can then filter out the things that they don't like. Early on, it's a fishing expedition. You're throwing images from the internet at them. You know, I just did a, a, a week research for a, a designer who I've worked with a couple of times before. And I scouted for a week and I never left my office. I looked all around the world and I probably put up a couple thousand images for him. He'd tell me which ones he liked. Every night he'd look at them. He, he narrowed and narrowed and narrowed the focus for all these different things. And ultimately, he came up with a lot of photographs that he was then able to provide to the set designers, the illustrators, the concept artists. He's putting a package together for a studio head, concept art of what this movie can look like. And so my contribution was finding him just varied locations for some very specific sets with all different looks. And it's a lot of fun because... There's really no right answer. There's no wrong answer. He doesn't know what he wants exactly. He sort of knows the mood, but doesn't know all the locations. And neither do I. I call location manager friends in New York and in Europe, and I had Skype calls, and I spent a lot of time online and ultimately gave him some images that I think he he could use. What are some of the organizational methods that you use when collecting all this data and then sharing it in an effective way? It used to be we'd all have our own websites. Location managers had their own websites, just post photos to the websites. They'd take them off and put them where they want to put them. Now, pretty much a production will very early on set up on a secure database. Marvel uses fifth kind. Sony uses Box. Paramount uses Box. People dial in remotely. Every department has their own folder. Every person has their own folder. There's a certain protocol. So you've always got a running record of all the photos. They're always going to be there. And what the designer does is he or she takes what they like and they create their own folders for the art department. You know, this is for researcher A, this is researcher B, or this is for this set, this is for that set. So everything now is pretty much done on big projects within secure databases, uh, secure servers. Smaller productions, commercials, a lot of them use Dropbox. A lot of them use Google Drive. So it just depends. It's not my choice anymore. It's whatever you want me to use. 
As far as budget goes, does the producer or the production manager just tell you how much you have to work with for your department, or do they still have you create your own budget? Well, they have a budget, but they never tell me what it is. They always want me to do my own, which is I don't want their budget. I want to, I want to go out and figure out what it's going to cost. Because frankly, most bu- budgets that I see from studios aren't realistic. They're a pattern budget. They might be based on other projects, maybe in the same area, maybe some other place. Ultimately, I just prepare a budget and say, look, based on what everybody's asked for, the production designer, the key grip, the gaffer, you know, they want to build platforms here. They want to put lights there. Set dressing wants to do this. The art department wants to do Based on what everybody's asking for, it's going to cost you $875,000 for this location to shoot in for four days, five days, whatever number of days. And they'll tell me I'm crazy. And I'll say, well, here's my budget. What do you not want? Here's police. You don't want police? You can't control traffic. You can't park the trucks. They want to put lights on these five buildings. It's going to cost X dollars. It's up to them to say, no, we're going to put lights on three buildings, not five buildings. Um, The art department wants 12 days to prep, and here's the prep day cost. Well, no, they can't. they got to do it in nine days. Okay, tell them nine days. A lot of times they want me to be the bad guy. You tell them they can't have. No, no, no. This is what everyone says they need. It's your job to tell them what they can and cannot have. Production manager's job. I'm not going to deal with it. Sometimes there's only a producer serving as a producer slash production manager. Sometimes there's a separate production manager. I share this information with everybody. Uh, like I'll, if I email the producer a budget thing, I'll CC the producer and the designer. So they all know what's the page we're on because the designer might really want all these prep days because he needs this and that. But the production manager is saying, no, you don't, you can't do it. So I, I just throw it out there. The glory of, emails now you can cc the world it's it's not my call so mike bring us into your budgeting process how do you approach creating that budget for your department well it's it is a process and my budgets are very detailed and i budget by location so five days at this location i've got you know 14 prep days and six strike days and 12 whole days and and first of all, you have to know what the parameters are. You give me a schedule, give me a one-liner, or give me a schedule, X number of days here, X number of days there. And I, you know, I look through old uh, schedules. I look through old budgets, old cost reports, old Bible runs when I'm doing budgets, just to, uh, what did I have? Oh, I've got, a, I've got a big car chase. And I look in pa- past shows where I have car chase. I can see the things I need. Oh, don't forget extra parking for the car carriers. Don't forget extra days of prep for special effects, police, fire, security, those kinds of things. You throw the numbers in, throw your kicker on top of it, 5%, 10%, whatever. And you turn in your budgets. And what I always tell my production manager and producer is, here's the number. I know you're going to hate it. So they always have a hemorrhage. It's always too much. But after we text out, the number is going to go up invariably because everybody, you know, you've all of a sudden people want these other things that you hadn't anticipated. You speak with the cinematographer and the designer, and they tell you what they need. Oh, son of a gun. What the cinematographer just said means we need more condor placement. What the designer just said means we need more prep days and more wrap days. The grips come on, the electricians come on, the set dressers come on, visual effects come on. Everybody talks about what they need, and you just keep adding and adding. Sometimes you take away, oh, I don't need this, but I'm going to put it here. And you keep revising. And my job isn't necessarily to say no to anybody. 
Uh, I'll say no if something is unsafe or illegal, but if the key grip says he needs X days to do this, or the designer says they need X days to do that, or the set decorate, anything, I put it all in my budget. And it's all detailed, and so I can say to the production manager, tell me what you don't want. I've listed what people have asked for. Tell me what you don't want. Okay, Mike, you know, they can't have nine prep days. They've got to do it in six. Okay, you tell them. It's not my job to tell them. So I, I try to bridge those gaps. I try to encourage those discussions. Let's all get on the same page as far as what we're going to do here before we launch this ship so that there's no surprises. The production manager will drag in the different department heads and that we'll hammer it out. Everybody asks for what they need plus a little bit. So it's just a process. It's a process, it's a process. And at a certain point, you have to lock the budget. Right. So tell us more about once you start production, cost reporting, expense tracking. How does that work from your perspective as the location manager? Um, once we start filming, if I budgeted, let's say I've got $150,000 for this set. If I spend $120,000, then I will hold that. We'll go through three or four or five sets because invariably I'm going to go over somewhere. So I start to work with the accountant. I'm going to, I've got an extra 20000 here. I'm going to hold it because in two weeks I'm going to need it for this set because I know I'm short here. And so it's a juggling game. And every week after about the third or the second or third week, we start making adjustments. You know, they'll send me a spreadsheet that shows me where I'm over and where I'm under and how I'm sitting versus my budget. And then it's just a, uh, sort of a chess game. You, st you start to just juggle and, and move money around between locations and between sets. And, and there's a lot of times when I'm sitting there going, you know what? I don't have the money to cover all this stuff. We just got rained on for four days and we got shut off for four days and we had to hold the location. And we had to hold the parking. So, you know what? I'm $22,000 over. I don't have, it. I don't have it to cover. They give it to me or we make some other adjustments somewhere. So when you say you talk to the accountant, you don't go through the production manager uh, it's pretty much me and the accountant. Once the production approves the budget, the production manager, eh, we don't really deal with that stuff too much. It's not a fight with me. I, I don't, I'm not precious about my budget. I don't, look, I don't hold it close to my heart. I'll fight for what I need, but it's, it's not my money. I, I'm, I'm a big believer just throwing it out there for everybody to look at and talk about so that at the end of the day, I'm zero. The worst thing you can do a week before the end of the film is say, geez, I've got 150000 bucks I don't need. They don't want to sit there. With, they want to spend that money. The director is going to be pissed. The cinematographer is going to be pissed because they didn't get what they wanted. The set dressers are going to be pissed. They could have had another prep day. They could have had, you know, that rooftop or, or that lane closure. Well, let me ask one question just to clarify. On your budget, if they decide they're going to build on a stage, your budget is including stage rental, prep days, build days, production no, support. No. It's always a little different. Usually the, the company's got a, a stage budget. But what they might need is portable toilets, or they might need tents or lunch boxes for extras holding or lunch or something like that when they're on the lot. They might need some sort of hair, makeup, wardrobe support. Sometimes production handles it, and I love it when they do, but a lot of times when they do, they screw it up. It's not because they're not used to doing it. They're used to doing production office stuff, not setting up hair, makeup, wardrobe stations for 75 people on stage. So it, for me, most of the time, it's a way to keep my people busy. I was sort of like a young assistant at it. So, you know, here, you deal with the stage. You'd make sure the Johns are in place, the dumpsters are in place, the hair, makeup, wardrobe's in good shape, the trash is picked up. End of the day, everything is clean and neat. So it's, usually it's a big help to production stuff. So I don't pay for the rental of the stages or the operations people. I deal with like the logistical stuff. It's complicated. I guess uh, 
what's important is to make sure that everybody knows what everybody's doing. And it is a dance. It sometimes it's a waltz, and sometimes it's it's a jitterbug, and, and sometimes it's it's two clunky people stepping on each other's toes. But eventually, you get there. What advice would you give to production teams, location people working on smaller films or commercials who often don't have the resources to have a full location department? What are important priorities to set up a production at any level for success? Well, there has to be a sense of reality. One of the problems with small productions is folks have huge, huge ideas and aspirations, and they don't have the, the money to support those aspirations and dreams. I'm not saying don't have those aspirations. You should always reach for the stars, always reach for the stars creatively. And really good people can come up with solutions that are maybe different, new, innovative. But ultimately, you've got to pay for it. So I would say, try to work with your production designer in the art department to get ideas from them. The less money you have, the more conversations you have to have with your creative team. You've really got to get into their head. You've got to find out what they want. You've got to show them a lot of examples so they can point you in the right direction. A lot of times people know what they want but can't describe what it is. So the only way to get to what it is is by showing a bunch of photographs images, drawings, sketches, research, whatever you can find, throw it on the table. Early on, you can't go wrong. You can't go wrong because you're trying to get to that point of finding out what's inside their head. So use the images that are out there and available and uh, let that be a guide to help you getting where you need to go. So take advantage of the resources that are out there. Know what they are. Use film commissions. Use the film offices in the places that you want to film. Get a permit. Don't steal locations because by stealing locations, you do a couple of things. One, you make it really hard for professionals to come in afterwards. After a, a, a small budget film, a student project, come in, screwed up a neighborhood because nobody knew they were coming. They parked in places they shouldn't park. They stopped traffic when they shouldn't have. Maybe there was an accident, a problem. Get a permit deal with a permitting agency. They don't cost that much for small productions. It's a very, very small part of the budget. For student films, I think they're free. Do things the right way. And I know there's going to be people out there who say, oh, screw that, you know, guerrilla filmmaker. Guerrilla filmmaking is great if you've got three people in your iPhone. I'm not big on guerrilla filmmaking when you're packing a big crew in a major city and you're screwing things up whether you're screwing up things for the neighbors or the, the business owners or for future productions. Now, as far as working, a team can be simply a manager, an assistant, and a couple of PAs. Um, but, you know, you've got to be there to get people in the door to prep. You've got to be there when they're filming. You've got to be there when they're wrapping. You've got to take care of the location because invariably, if you just leave a crew to deal with things the way they want to deal with them, there's going to be problems. It's going to cost you money. It's going to be a black eye on the company. Your production manager is going to be pissed when they've got to pay a business for an impact or something like that. It's cheaper to have an assistant location manager out there at a few hundred bucks a day than deal with the guy who claims you've hit him for $3,000 worth of lost business. How do you deftly work to balance the needs of any property owner against the desire for creative excellence. I think that's probably an enormously key part of your job. Well, it's always tough. Filmmakers want what they want, whether it be putting a camera in a certain spot or a light in a certain spot or a vehicle in a certain spot or an actor in a certain spot. Filmmakers want 
everything. And, and that's fine. That's, that's, that's their, the director, it's the director's job to ask for everything he or she wants. And the same thing as the cinematographer and the production designer and the key grip and the gaffer and everybody. It's, it's their job to ask for everything because we're all here to help the director, you know, achieve their vision. It's my job to balance them, to get the director, designer, cinematographer as much as I can give them. At the same time, I've got to, uh, my whole theory, and, and I was taught this by the woman that got me into this business, Patricia Fay. you've got to be able to knock on that door again. If, if you go to a location, whether it's a home, an office building, a national forest, if you go there, you do your work, and you leave, can you go back next week, next month, next year, knock on the door and have them welcome you back? If you can, you've done your job. If you can't, you haven't done your job. Location managers walk a, a tightrope, and one foot's in production, and one foot is in locations. And the locations are people that, you know, you get to know them over the course of time. All I have is my word. If I don't keep my word, as big as the film business is, it's a very small business. It's a small, incestuous family. And if Mike Fantasia gets a reputation for burning locations, It'll affect my career, number one, but also it'll affect the people coming after me. I've gone to a lot of locations, knocked on the door and said, ah, oh, tell you what, so-and-so was here six months ago. They still owe me $500 or they broke to my tree and they didn't fix it. Or my neighbors are still pissed off because, you know, a grip was setting up C-stands on their property. So ultimately what I do is I, I when I hear a proposal from somebody in production, a request from somebody in production. If I know it's just not going to happen, I'll try to find a way very quickly, very nicely to say it's not going to happen. And here's why. You can't put that there because it's a helicopter landing zone. It's got to be kept clear. Or they've had production here before and they won't allow that anymore. So it's, it's a balance. They ask for something. You try like hell. You can't give it to them. And you go, hey, I can't do this. I can't get you this because of this reason. And they look at me and say, hmm, okay, well, you know what that means? It means something better is out there, and I'm sure you'll find it, which is great. I'd love to hear about building out your location department. What do you look for in your team to get the job done in the right way? I try to hire uh, diversity of people. I like men and women. I like young and I like old. I like inexperienced and experienced. Inexperienced because I like to help train young kids on Top Gun. I got three people into the union. Uh, some had some production experience, some had very little. And uh, two of the three have stuck with locations. So I like a mix of people. Uh, I want people with different talents. I would love for everybody to have all of these attributes, but everybody, very few people do. But I need people who are good with budgeting. I need people who are good scouts. I need people who are good at logistics. I knew everybody's got to be a people person. If you're not a people person, you're not in my department. Um, when I interview people, there's always, you know, I call you in for an interview if, I, if you get through the first background checks. I'll call friends. I'll call people I know have worked with you. And if they think you're a good person, then I'll, I'll bring you on board for a, uh, an interview and uh, try to get a feel for the person. Uh, the last thing, I'm giving away a secret here, but I'm toward the end of my career, so it's probably going to be okay. But usually the last thing we do on an interview, I'm really interested in hiring somebody. We'll go take a walk. And I walk fast. I just walk fast normally. I do everything sort of fast. And if they don't keep up with me on this walk, they don't get hired. So anyway, uh, how do you get in? If I'm looking for somebody, it's going to come because I've gotten a good reference 
Or if I've just met you somewhere and I've got a good feel for you, I'll, I'll take a chance. Always the caveat, we'll give this two weeks. If I have problems, I'm going to let you know. If you have problems, let me know. In two weeks, we'll see how it's going. I love that. Mike, this has been a jam-packed discussion. Thank you so much. We've reached the point on the show where we do our Abby Singer segment. Our guests can share a story or some kind of lesson learned from the front lines of their work. Do you have anything that you'd like to share with us today? Yeah, it's to me, this shows what the movie business is, it can be like and what it is like for a lot of people. Um, it was about 20 years ago. It was right after 9-11. On 9-11, I, had, uh, I was supposed to go in to meet with a director uh, about a movie that I was going to do. But 9-11 happened, so they canceled it postponed it. I went in a few weeks later and I walked in and I walked into Steven Spielberg's office with the production designer and the producer and uh, walked over and he put out his hand and said, hello, uh, nice to meet you, Mike, uh, Steven Spielberg. And I said, uh, nice to see you again, Steven. I said, I'm Mike, the forest service guy from Libby, Montana. He looked at me. I said, yeah, I'm a location manager now. I said, uh, you don't work for the forest service? I said, no, after always, I I quit the Forest Service and I got into locations. Here I am. He said, wow, small world, isn't it like? And we just laughed. And a couple of times during the show, he would, he would make, make a reference to the old Forest Service days and working on always. But I just thought, son of a God, I'm working for the Forest Service in the woods of Montana. And whatever New Year's later, I'm standing in Steven Spielberg's office uh, saying hello again. I always remembered that. It's, it's always, it always sort of grounds me back to, you know, sort of where I came from. Amazing. Mike, thank you so much for all your awesome stories and your insights. We really appreciate your time. And we definitely want to have you back on the show again, man. Thank you. Well, it's, it's, I, I love to do this kind of thing. I and mean, it's just, just sharing my experiences. It's a lot of fun. And you know, I hope somebody gets a benefit out of it. And that's Taillights, folks, on another episode of Call Sheet. This show is brought to you by Elgin Entertainment. It is produced and hosted by Kiku Terasaki and me, Bryce Sirier, with support from our associate producer, Nathaniel Duber. I'm also the editor of the show, and our theme music is by Robert Mai. Our guest today was Mike Fantasia. We talked about how to manage locations effectively, from scouting, budgeting, leading your team, and how to interface well with location owners. Thanks again, listeners, for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed this episode and keep coming back for more. I'd just like to remind you, if you'd be so kind, please share the show with a friend or colleague and take just one minute to leave us a review in whatever podcast app you use. We really appreciate your feedback and support. Also, if you want to suggest a topic that you'd like to hear discussed in a future episode, please send it in. You can email us at callsheetpodcast at gmail.com or hit us up on social media at callsheetshow. You should also check out our website for the latest content and news. That's callsheetshow.com. There are links to all of that and additional resources in this episode's show notes, so be sure to check those out. Remember to stay tuned for new episodes of Call Sheet every Thursday morning. And in the meantime, good luck and go make it happen.